the National Archives podcast series, Mind the Gap, Project Discussions at UCL, presented by Nancy Bell as part of our Big Idea series of talks. So I've been asked to talk about a AHRC-funded research network that I've been leaning on over the last year. And I have to say that of all the research projects that I've been involved with, in many respects, this one has been the most interesting for reasons that I hope become apparent. Largely, it's because of the reception that it's received beyond the usual suspects in the community of practice that I'm involved with. It's really gained a lot of recognition, and I think that suggests that what is emerging has had a certain resonance with communities and in a way that's uh, never been appreciated before. Just by way of background, for those of you who don't know, there was five years of AHRC, EPSRC funding for discrete funding called the Science and Heritage Program. That program set out to address a number of very broad challenges and themes. Five years on, I think the program comes to an end this year, projects are winding up. The impact has been substantial, not only in terms of the usual academic research impacts of papers published, but the program has definitely set a new standard for multidisciplinary research, capacity building with a whole new group of people, and certainly it's given rise to challenging that word engagement and what it means. It's certainly benefited heritage, heritage research, heritage research organizations because now across the major funding councils, including the sciences, EPSRC, heritage is very much seen as not an optional extra, but almost critical to addressing some of the very complex challenges facing society. So as the program was coming to an end, about 15 months ago, the AHRC invited all principal investigators. In fact, the meeting was held at the National Archives. And I thought, we all thought that we were going to be put in a room and say, well, you know, thank you very much. What did you learn? And none of us thought we would go away with more work to do. But we had a discussion about how the program had evolved and the projects we were involved with. And one of the big themes emerging from the discussion amongst the principal investigators in the room, there was some experience of difficulty in the collaborative process. And while many, uh, many of the principal investigators found the whole experience beneficial because it's a rich experience when it goes well, aspects of it were notably unrewarding. I wouldn't say it came as a shock, but it it came to the (coughs) fore in a way that it hadn't before, because the reasons that people get involved with collaborative and multidisciplinary research projects is because of the richness and the potential for transformational behavior and learning at the end of it. But there were obvious pinch points that arose in language between disciplines, methodological differences, and really importantly, expectations between higher education, academic research institutions, and those based on more practice-based, practice-focused institutions like the National Archives and even under that, I would say, 
archivist, as a practice-based community, or conservation professionals. From this initial meeting, I found this very interesting, and I remember quite clearly as a way of distracting myself from completing an audit or the risk register that was in my inbox. I remember one Saturday using the library here and looking around the whole subject of collaborative research engagement. And I learned very quickly, there is a vast body of literature across other subjects who have had to deal with or grapple with the collaborative process in their own disciplines. And specifically, they were looking at how to bridge the gap between the rigor of academic research and the relevance to practice-led or practice-focused communities. This became particularly true in areas of education, who's published quite a lot. For example, how does educational theory translate to improving practice in the classroom, in the organizational theory? How does the research of Harvard Business School really translate to improving business practice? Similarly, in medicine, there's some quite fascinating research on how does medical research, how does behavioral research improve the patient experience or the medical experience of the team working in the operating theater. And that's an important one, which I'll come back to. I found it felt that there was resonance across communities outside my own specialism or the work we're doing at TNA. I was quite enthusiastic about learning from them. And I shared my enthusiasm with colleagues, and before I knew it, I had quite a significant funding application to write, along with Matthias Strilich at University College London, Centre for Sustainable Heritage, Pip Lawrenson, Collections Research at Tate, Professor Andrew Thompson at Exeter University, who was very enthusiastic about this project, and he's also leadership fellow for the Care for the Future program, an AHRC-funded program at the moment. So the idea was that we would examine in detail the hindrances as well as enablers of collaboration across academic and practice-focused research communities but base it on those who engaged in the UK in some kind of science heritage research project over the last five years. And while this is rooted in science and heritage, there is no doubt in my mind that what we have found has application more widely. So just to be clear, we've defined the term researcher as academic researcher and user as those who use research evidence in practice. And that's the kind of research that we tend to support in the National Archives. There was one further impetus for undertaking this project, and that was about RCUK quotes that they are clear about changing organizational culture and practice to ensure the right research base is delivered and the culture necessary to achieve it is in place. They want to deliver the most impactful research for UK PLC. That also was a link to supporting this project. What did we do? We undertook a quantitative study, and that was delivered by Dr. Catherine Dillon, who is a social scientist researcher that we worked with before. 
and I'll come on to a little bit more detail about that. But we didn't stop there. What we were challenged to do is what do other disciplines in the arts and humanities have to say about how we work and undertake research? I'm pleased to say that we had and an amazing response to some conversations I had with people. Heidi Geismer, a cultural anthropologist, was looking at us as a tribe, a community of users, and the cultural differences that exist within that group. Professor Ben Rampton, who's chair of linguistics at King's, he's an ethnographic linguist, and he wanted to comment on the language that we use and what does that say about us. Jerry Padani, a conservator from the Getty Museum, and the Getty supports a lot of science research, so they were very interested in where this was going. We had three other conservation scientists from the VNA, TNA, as well as Professor Alfred Kaiser, who has written extensively on organizational theory and collaborative research, and one of his seminal pieces is undertake collaborative research but forget the practitioner and he is based in a place called Zeppelin University it does exist and he does exist and he's been very interesting in his comments so we wanted to address three interrelated questions is there a gap between academic researchers and practitioners between rigor and relevance of the work are there distinctive features defining a working culture that will support effective research collaboration? And what framework is required to engage communities of practice and research cultures to optimize the outcomes of collaborative research? And what do we need to do to develop collaborative relationships and sustain them long term? This is about big ideas. It's not a seminar on social science research. So all I'm going to say is briefly big headings about what our method of analysis was. There's something called factor analysis, and what we did is you gain opinions from people and you elicit from that words and 50 attitude statements about what helps and hinders collaboration were drawn uh, together. And then within that, you find clusters of how people respond to different attitudes to collaborative (coughs) research around their goals, their satisfaction, achievement ratings, etc. We also did some cluster profiling. This was the first time that we can find that those responding to the questionnaire and participating evaluated or named themselves. Usually questionnaires put a label on you, who you are, after the fact. And that's significant in one of the results. And then we had open box questions that people could add their comments. So that's all I'm going to say about the method. And there is many long papers and reports emerging from this project. And if somebody wants to dig into that more deeply, I'm happy to share those references with you. Let me just give you some idea of selected key findings. After three months of work, I can distill this into just a few points. I'm pleased to say that unlike other practice-focused research communities, there didn't seem to be a significant gap between the aspiration of rigor and relevance of the project. However, we did find 84% of the respondents felt that while the aims of research projects would be achieved, there was 
a very low number of people that felt that the impact would be sustained long term. And certainly the users of research rated impact much lower in terms of achievement than academic researchers. And we can discuss why that is. But certainly there is still a significant disconnect between what research can do and managing expectations and that belief that at the end of the project you can immediately change practice or influence policy all the time. We also certainly learned that the sharp distinction between researchers and users is inappropriate and that really we should move to using the term hybrid researcher because there's really very blurred boundaries between the two. And many respondents reported dual roles, researcher and user, and it was, if we had to do it again, we probably wouldn't make such a distinction that what we did was based on literature of other groups that didn't apply in the same way to us. So what are the distinctive features that define a good working culture? Now, some of this is really obvious, and you would say, well, we know that, don't we? But there were some very clear comments that people wanted to engage in collaborative research. And that was uh, because it adds considerable value to the outcomes of what they're doing. Nevertheless, a sizable uh, minority of respondents reported that collaboration had been challenging and they lacked collaborative skills, and that was a very high percentage of people. And so what is emerging is that as research councils and funders are putting money into collaborative working, and there is an expectation that we can work across multidisciplinary boundaries quite freely and easily that isn't always the case and there isn't sufficient skills development or understanding at the both beginning and end of what that means. Over and over and over again there was phrases around the healthy collaborative dynamic where there was shared interest, mutually shared goals and a genuine enthusiasm for collaboration. And these were linked to the overall satisfaction and achievement of the project. While shared goals were considered to be essential enabler of collaborative research, researchers and users had significantly different goals. Academic researchers seek impact largely through publications, while practice-focused researchers, their goals are around improving practice and influencing policy in their own organizations where possible. There was a huge agreement that people's willingness to participate was to gain access to experts and really to develop professionally. So nearly 100% people found the value in it in terms of their own personal growth and experience. The size and complexity of a project also shaped its success. Larger projects were found to present challenges in terms of the dynamic, and we've worked out about six partners is about as much as you can manage without moving to a different level of project management for projects like this. Maintaining research quality, if you go beyond that certain critical mass, it's more difficult to maintain research quality and establish mutual understanding and simply dealing with the bureaucracy of that many partners. 
What we really learned is that effective collaboration takes time to incubate, to grow and mature. This process is sometimes compromised by insufficient attention to capacity building at the front end of project and the short-term nature of funding calls. Too often the collaboration comes to an abrupt end and this is exactly at the point where further funding would allow, it's exactly at that point where the relationship um, could grow further and possibly yield the best outcomes from research. So what framework needs to be put in place and what are the essential mechanisms for delivery? There was a divide between the HE sector and practice-focused research organisation around organisational support. Interestingly, and I wouldn't have expected this, is that HE sector felt that they had very little support within their own organisation, internal support, for growing multidisciplinary research. And those whose research was most valued were organisations like this. Teasing this out further, we certainly found, perhaps, and we put this in the recommendations, that expectations from both sides need to be made clear. The partners in project management came up over and over and over again. The need for very careful project management, which might sound very obvious to us, where we as an organization seem to thrive on project management protocols, this isn't the case across the board in many organizations. Many projects came off the rails or were viewed as less satisfactory because of the multifaceted nature of the projects and project management wasn't as closely adhered to as it possibly should have been. The mix of the team was regarded as important and we've concluded it should be a good spread of experience and expertise and that may be something that we might want to keep in mind as we rush to put bids together that a broad spectrum from early researchers to more senior people is the best and we'll come on a bit to talk about early career researchers. Findings suggested that as experience of respondents increased, so did their preference for the collaborative working style, their interest in bridging disciplines, their understanding of partners' research approaches, and their satisfaction with research quality. Although, interestingly, there is a body of literature that finds that, I couldn't find it in the statistics for today, but when people reach the very end of their research career, they rather go it alone, and they've had enough of collaboration. Interesting results around early career researchers. Some very strong views from that community. While early career researchers benefit from access to resources and develop specialist expertise, skills and networks in collaborative projects, they found the challenge of multidisciplinarity early in their career very difficult. The junior and student researchers demonstrated a less collaborative working style and were more likely to have strong career and professional development goals than maybe the overall goals of the project. I would say that certainly in my own experience, what I would do in the future is make much more clear the role and the responsibility of the early career researchers. I think we need to include them, but appreciate that they are at a point in their time in their development where they're bedding down their own disciplinary knowledge and developing their specialism 
they need to do that, they're quite selfish about that, rightly so, and so for a project leader, a principal investigator to expect an early researcher or a postdoc to necessarily cross boundaries and work in that way is probably more than we should be asking. It would be better to root their expertise in one aspect of the project and get them to deliver on that element. Overall, users' goals were not met, suggesting that they have high ex expectations for achieving practice-focused goals. The reason for this is probably that the time lag in moving from basic research to application needs to be better understood by practice-focused communities. Comments from non-HEI partners suggested that academic research takes too much time. We need answers to things now. And then there was a significant part of this looking at the role of industry in small to medium enterprises. Findings suggest that while engagement between HEIs and non-HEIs is solid, there is less engagement with business than with heritage and non-commercial organizations. Essentially, industry and organizations want to be involved with collaborative work. They enjoy and see the benefits of and really appreciate the richness of collaboration, but they often don't have the opportunity or the time. So we might want to think about how they're engaged when we're putting together research bids. Also, there's a notion that knowledge transfer from these communities, from SMEs to research, is largely driven by commercial interest, and this has certainly been reported more widely in the literature. This certainly wasn't found in this study. It was knowledge sharing across expertise and building relationships were considered the key enablers of collaboration. We're also very aware that, that the interest of SMEs in collaborative projects might be affected by funding bodies, regulations as the Technology Strategy Board, RCUK and EU framework rules for SME participation are very different. It is oftentimes they require to invest quite a considerable money themselves for very speculative projects. So those are some of the sort of big headlines. On Wednesday you can pick up and I will have many extra copies, a full copy of the report. But as this is very much about big ideas and not just the detail of what we've accomplished, a few reflections on recommendations for TNA and our own engagement with research projects. I know from my own experience, five years on, and having done this piece of work, that I have not built in enough time for meetings with collaborators, assuming that we're all clairvoyant and understand exactly what the approach is that we're going to take. I also have learned that, based on the postdoc experience that we've had here <laughs> with collaborative PhDs, that I probably had very unrealistic expectation of early career researchers. And I now understand that they are very much driven by different aims, and I would build them into projects differently. I believe a gap remains within TNA between researchers and users of research, maybe not in terms of rigor and relevance, but I still think that we have a deeply instilled perception that research will, within the time frame of the project, deliver outcomes that will lead to changes in practice and provide the sharp, clear evidence we need for policy changes. This can happen, but not always within the relatively short time of one year to three year projects. 
So in thinking about my own experience here, how can we take this forward? I would like to suggest that we think about induction training to all those who are leading research projects or even participating in projects so that the roles and responsibilities are better understood and the necessary project management in place beyond that which is what you outline in your own funding bid that's slightly different. And that we recognize that users on both sides of the divide have different expectations and these need to be recognized and managed. I would also like to challenge some of our senior management to recognize and applause the relationships that TNA has built with external partners and encourage and grow an environment where these very rich relationships can be sustained. I would say that over the last five years, the relationship that we've developed with UCL is really um, transformed over five years of working with them. And it's taken five years to build that very mature relationship. And I'm very aware that it can be fragile and unpicked in a very short time. And that the benefits that we continue to enjoy with that relationship are just getting better and better. I hope that we continue to support big events like Big Ideas and create environments where we can exchange the outcomes of research and provide an environment of creativity and sharing that grows from our projects. In the open box comments, there is a clear enthusiasm for encouraging more secondments into TNA from small and medium-sized industry and academic institutions. While we're good at our experiences sending people out, we've had fewer people coming in. And in this age of austerity where there is little cash to do anything, it's a good way to kind of barter and bring expertise in in a way that we haven't done before. I think over the last year, we've learned that the rewards of successful collaboration are achieved through a dynamic process, but it does require time and upfront planning, perhaps in a way that we haven't done so heretofore. I am also aware, in diving deep into this subject, that the word research landscape is becoming more complex. And while technology is helping us to make different ways of doing research possible, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that people remain at the core. It's people that deliver this. And that we need to nurture those relationships and build an environment where that can happen. Now, as this kind of hook to all this, I'm pleased to say that there has been five external bodies who have picked up on a lot of the work that's happened over the last year, including AHRC, including the Institute of Collaborative Working, there is such a thing, and it's funded by BIS, English Heritage in particular, and the National Heritage Science Forum. And I'm not going to blow the surprises or the announcements, but there's some really good news stories coming out of this from those organizations who are committed to taking this work further because the commitment, certainly from RCUK, is that they need, as I said in the beginning, to put the right research culture in place. And there is a better understanding that maybe up to now that hasn't been there in the way that it needs to be. So that sort of hop, skip, and jump through 15 months or a year, whatever, 12, seals like two years, of intensive study. Thanks.
This talk was recorded on the 13th of January 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. Thank you.